I had an occasion where uh, this, this is Saturday. Um, sometimes the, the introduction to a message just come, is just handed to you. So Friday was our anniversary. And, well, uh, thank you. But th- that's not it. That's not it. Friday was our anniversary, and the kids were uh, at the grandparents, which is where you can clap. No, I'm just kidding. The kids were at the grandparents, and uh, so woke up Saturday morning uh, in just one of those, like, you no know, responsibilities, just feeling good. You know, my wife and I were together. It's just a great, great time, and we, you know going to make breakfast and just be together, and the phone rang, 7.20, and it was her mom, <clears throat> and they live on the same property on, over the hill, and, and we, she says to my wife, she says, the horse and the donkeys are grazing in our yard, so we have a horse and two donkeys on our farm, and they sit in the fence, but they apparently were not in the fence, they were out of the fence, in my mother-in-law's yard, eating their, apparently their grass is greener. <laughs> so they're eating. So I had all these, like, visions of grandeur, relaxing on Saturday morning. Next thing you know, you know, I'm cursing, my, you know, under my breath and putting my jeans on. I'm going out, and there's these two donkeys and this horse, and, you know, I'm not even, I don't even, this is my wife's business, I'm, you know, I'm doing all that, I'm like, it was like any kind of love and affection was gone, and next thing you know, I'm shooing these animals, and the donkeys are scared of men, so they don't like me, and, and the horse scares me, so I don't like him, and, and apparently what had happened, and this is not part of the intro, but it's just worth knowing, the horse must have gotten his head between two rails of the, we have a three-rail split fence, must have got his head stuck and panicked and lifted, and he pulled the post right out of the ground, which, I mean, that is like, it's like 150 pounds of just power. It was, I mean, he scares me. So I'm, you know, shooting and doing this, you know, yeah, yeah, because I'm not a horse person, you know, so horse people, mercy and grace, and my wife's there, you know, with carrots, come on, and we finally get them all in, and there I am at 7.30 in the morning on my knees pulling out the mud and the gunk out of the hole to put the post in. I'm all covered with dirt and my post hole digger. And I don't even, it's not even my animals or not even my pets. And I have that spirit. And, and the notion, though, is, is like, so they're not my animals. But if I don't put the fence back, they could stray and, and they could hurt, they could get hit by a car, or hurt somebody. I mean, that was, it's in your head. It's, it's, like, I'm not a horse person. I like them. They're fun to look at. But, you know, but that wasn't my affection for the animals was not why I was mending the fence. I was mending the fence because if they just wander, they will almost certainly die. They will, uh, they'll hurt themselves. And, and you don't want that to happen. And I, I got to thinking, um, the way, one important way of, of thinking about discipline as it relates to our children is we discipline our children in, in order to keep them safe. And in the lives of our children, there's a place that we, we want them to grow, right? And when I say children, I don't just mean kids. I mean 
all through life we continue to disciple. I feel like I'm continually being cared for as a son. But as we care for our children, there's a place that we know is good for them to be, a green pasture for them to be in. And we work to keep them there. And we work to, as you're raising and disciplining children, we work to circumscribe that pasture with a fence in order to keep them there. And the reason we work to discipline them in that way is because we know that on the other side of the fence is peril. Things, there are things, and I don't just mean earthly peril. I'm not saying that if our child puts their finger in a socket, it'll hurt them. I mean, that's true, but there's deeper things. If our child follows after that idol, it will kill them. It will kill their soul. That's, that's what I mean. That's why, you know, on a Saturday morning... Uh, we as parents might find ourselves on our knees for our children is because the fences we build and the pasture we provide saves their life. And I want us to see that this morning here in, in, in the Word. I want to start in Hebrews. We're going to start at one end of Scripture in Hebrews. And I want us to see one perspective of discipline. And then I want to turn to numbers after that and, and connect some dots. So here in Hebrews 12, it, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to begin to expound upon the idea of discipline, but he does it from an interesting starting point. This is a point in the book of Hebrews where the writer is really exhorting the reader to advance their faith, to mature their faith, to bring themselves to a new level, to, to approach the God with, with renewed vigor and seriousness, is what's being said here. It, it's... It begins with therefore, and it's, it's a bit of a hinge therefore. So much of the book of Hebrews has been working up to this moment. And this is what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There, there's, the, there's the push that the writer is giving. Now listen to what he says on the backside of this push. He says, in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make a light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is a really great passage. It just, this word, it just, you know, I, I hope you can carry just what the scriptures say, even without commentary or reflection, because this is just times when you, you stumble upon the richness of God's word, and I don't even know what needs to be said about it. It's just so good. But I, what I want to do from here is I want to reverse engineer a little bit of, of what the writer in Hebrews has done. What the writer in Hebrews has done is he's tried to help us understand our heavenly father by making us think of our earthly father. He says, the Lord's disciplining you because he loves you. After all, didn't your dad do that? That's, that's the gist here. That's the argument being made is, don't you remember when your father disciplined you? And you respected him for it. The Lord does likewise. Well, what I want to do is I want to kind of enter from the top of that idea and go the other way. I want us to start with the notion that God is our father and that we are his children and he disciplines us for our good. And I want to begin to unpack what does that look like for us as parents and our children. Let's look at the example of God in Scripture and kind of pull out lessons for us. And so if you would, turn with me to Numbers 13. We're going to look at a God example of discipline, of the way he disciplines his people for their good. And we're going to ask some questions around discipline. I think Numbers 13 is page 103. So here's what you'll have to do with me as we look in the Old Testament. And this is a a pretty healthy, helpful exercise oftentimes when trying to understand what God's doing with the nation of Israel. So it's not just an exercise today. It's, it's a tool. It's a perspective of understanding God in the Old Testament scriptures. But when we read about Israel, I would rather, I'm asking you to think of Israel as a person, not as a people. Okay? Think of Israel as a person. In fact, God named the nation with a name, like would be like God calling the United States Tom. That's what he did. I mean, he, the nation of Israel is the nation of a name. There's, in other words, there is a historical personification that's happening in the story of Israel. But when we, when we think of Israel as a person, it helps us understand a little bit the perspective of discipline that God's bringing to the person. And what I mean to say is, when we see the Israelites, as, when we think of them as people, and we see the Israelites do a sinful thing, and then God struck, strikes 20,000 of them dead, and we're at the people level, that's very hard to figure out. Like, wow, God just struck those people dead. But if we think of it as a person, we can understand how that discipline fits in a little bit better. It's, it's like this. If no one, none of us would look at um, a child being spanked and would really be in crisis about the skin cells on their rear end that are getting spanked, even though those are the ones that are hurting. Those are the ones that are under the brunt of judgment. 
right? We think of the person as being judged. The, the child is being disciplined in the spanking, and, and it, the, the spoon is just landing on the rear end. It's, that's, but it's the person that's being shaped. And the same thing is the case here in the Old Testament. Oftentimes the Lord is disciplining Israel, and the spoon or the rod or the switch lands in some places, but the notion is trying to care for the nation almost as a person. It's, it's, an important, it's important to hold on to because otherwise we can find ourselves kind of mired down in is this version of is the Old Testament God a God of wrath who's always striking people down. And we need to separate the idea of people dying. This is, I got to say that, I, I got to say this because we can't even look into the Old Testament unless we kind of prepare ourselves. But you can make some wrong assumptions about the Lord if you see when he strikes someone dead, is it being his eternal wrath on that person? After all, will we not all die? We're not, we're, we're not children of wrath. But death will visit us, most likely. This is our desert. Are we, at some level, we're wandering, waiting for the promise. I mean, we're going to die in the desert. Moses died in the desert. So God's, how God deals with individuals is very different than what he's doing in reflecting his discipline on the person of Israel. Okay, so let's look at what he does. In, in Numbers 13, the people of Israel are right on the front of the promised land. The Lord's brought them right up to the frontier line. And what he did is he had 12 spies go into the land. And for 40 days, they searched through the land, the promised land of Canaan. They searched through, and they're bringing back report of what they've seen. And this is, this is what they say. It's 13, verse 27 to 31. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. So these other 10, Caleb and Joshua were for the four going in the land, but the other ten spies, they went throughout the camp and they, they spread this fearful, negative report. And here's, here's the response of the people. In verse, chapter 14, verse 1, that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, if you think of Israel as a person, and I don't want you to think of them as a child, but I do want you to see here the immaturity, the spiritual immaturity of Israel. 
that God has brought them all the way up to this land, has cared for them and fed them and provided for them and shown them and defended them and fought for them. He's brought them all the way to the promised land. It doesn't look exactly like they wanted. It's not being handed to them on a silver platter. And they are essentially rejecting God entirely. I mean, how else, what else are we to make of, come, let's get our own leader and let's go back to slavery in Egypt. And that sentiment is absolute rebellion. And it requires discipline. And they get it. Look at 14 verse 30. After the Lord hears the people's reaction, this is what he says. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children, that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to the whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in the desert. Here they will die. So the people, or if you think of Israel as a son, Israel rejects God's promise for them. Israel turns his face back to the west towards Egypt and almost starts to make a step to which the Lord says, well, you're not going back to Egypt. You're going to wander in the desert until a whole generation's dead, and your children I will bring back. I will keep my promise, but not with you. I'll keep my promise with them. And when the people hear that, <coughs> when they hear that, it is in some ways as a, as a child, you, you, well, we know this as parents, that when you say to the kid, that's it, and you levy the consequence, then you get obedience. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, like, that's it. When we get home, you're going to get a spanking. And then, uh, now they're a new person. Because now they're trying to negotiate themselves out from underneath the impending judgment. It shouldn't work. It's too late. Well, this is exactly what the Israelites do. This is what Israel does. Watch, Watch what happens. Verse 39. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up towards the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to a place that the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You have defeated, you will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. Do you realize the sin, the sin of Israel is not that they wouldn't go in the land. The sin of Israel is that they turn from the Lord. Moses is pointing at the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue was not their refusal. The heart of the issue was their lack of faith and refusal to follow God. It says, nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the high hill country, but neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down, attacked them, and beat them down all the way to Hormah. It is the first beat down in in recorded history. They get beat down. 
Now, certainly this would qualify as discipline. If we're going to think of, of, of God as the Father and Israel as the Son, this scene would qualify as um, a theological spanking, is what we might say. This is a theologically hard moment for Israel. Even if, even if it's not a spanking, it's, it's in that category. It fits the category of punitive punishment. It fits in the category, I mean, let's, just, let's just be plain and honest, it fits in the category of applying pain to the child <coughs> to correct the action. That's what the Lord's doing here. And it certainly is discipline. But if we think of this narrowly as the only place or the only way the Lord disciplines, we, we're missing, A, we're missing the heart of Hebrews 12, and B, we're missing all of what the Lord's done up to this very moment. <coughs> Excuse me. Because the Lord didn't start disciplining here in the 14th chapter. This isn't, it is not as though the Lord was not disciplining, and now he is disciplining. It's, this is a punctuation mark in the spectrum of discipline that's happening for the child. And let's, just, let's just step back and look at all the things that God has done. The first thing that God does is he establishes himself over Israel as his father. Right? When he rescues them from Egypt, he says, I, the Lord, am your God. Worship no other God. I am your father. That's, that's the first step in all of discipline as parents. We need to establish ourselves as the parent of the child. We have that mandate. We are the parent of the child. So the Lord clearly established that is discipline. That, that's, that sits in, this, in, the, in the bounds of discipline. If, if you don't establish yourself as having basic authority over your child, no true discipline can really unfold out of that. The second thing the Lord does is he explains to, the, to his son, Israel, to the people, the hope and the promise of the discipline. This is, this is, the, this is the heart of, of what, what it means, to the reason by which we're disciplining, is the Lord says to Israel, he says, this is where I'm going to bring you. This is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all kind of framing the promise of because of Abraham, I'm going to bring you to a good and spacious land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You'll be like the stars in the sky. You'll be like the sand of this, on the shore. You'll be so numerous that all the nations, all the world will be blessed through you. You'll be a light to the Gentiles. You'll be a banner to the nations. There's all these promises that are given to the Israelites which define the purpose of discipline. So, and I would ask you as a, as a parent, how do you or do you in any way, do your children know the purpose for which you're disciplining? Or is it always reactive? I'm saying, do they know that you are trying to raise them up for their good, that you have the true good life in mind for them, and that when, when you're disciplining, whether positively, whether you're instructing them, or whether it's punitive, whether you're, whether you're spanking them, or doing whatever it is in that category, that punitive category, do they understand, and I don't mean at the moment, is there a culture in the home 
that you're the parent and you have their best in mind and you have established all of this based on a promise. You have a, there's a promise that, that is for them if they grow up well in this life. I think for many parents, they don't discipline with any kind of promise. I, I think a lot of parents, I'm just saying from what I see in Target, I, I see parents that have no framework of discipline. They have horse, a horse and two donkeys and no fence. And they wake up in the morning and they shoo. They do this because there's grass, right? This is pretty, and they just do this until the horse falls asleep and then they fall asleep. And then they wake up the next morning and they, and there's no framework. It, there's no mindset of this is good and spacious land. This is where you ought to be. I'm going to set up a perimeter around this. I'm going, to, I'm going to create a life for you here because this is good. And outside of this land, there's danger. It's perilous out here. There's, I'm asking, do you have any framework as a parent to say this is the kind of person we're trying to raise? And does the child have any sense that you're trying to do a good thing? It's helpful, by the way, you know, when you're sitting at dinner and, and we've all had the child who's disintegrated in the restaurant. So, like, I'm not casting judgment because it would be heaped upon me four times. But I, I do use the opportunity, I do use the opportunity to point at because it's not my kid. So with our kids now, when we go to Moe's and you have the, the thing on the floor, you know, we point over there, and, and they are now the point where we're being like, Phew. like, they get it. Like, they miss it in other places, but they get it there. They understand that we had their good in mind. Do you do that? Do you try to draw the good? Hebrews 12 says, the fruit of discipline is holiness. It is a harvest of righteousness and peace. Do, the, do your children know you're trying, that you have no agenda other than they would have life and life to the fullest? When we have this narrow definition of discipline, we look at Numbers 14 and go, well, that's where the Lord disciplined. We're missing all of the discipline in front. The fact that he establishes himself as the father. The fact that he establishes for them a promise. The fact that he puts a fence around the good land. He defines the good life, and then he circumscribes the good life all the way around with fence posts. You don't do that. Right on each fence post is a different sign. Don't worship that. Don't covet that. Don't steal that. Don't lie to that. Honor that. Submit to that care for that. That's unclean. This is clean. Go here. You need to rest. Each signpost has a different idea that describes what it means to be in the promise of God. Do you do that? Do the rules in your home reflect the principles and statutes and decrees that give the child life? I'll say this. There are some parents that are wonderful parents. I mean, there's a dad who, he gets home, and the first thing he wants to do is go throw a ball with Tommy, right? And come in and give a hug to Sally. And you walk in, and the little daughter has the apron on, and the, you know, she's all covered with flour because she spent the whole day making cookies with her mom. And, you know, and you're like, man, we're so lame, 
Because you see these examples. There's families that are so good at parenting. They're not even in the faith. They don't even know Jesus. They don't know the stories of Abraham. They just are good parents. But you know what? Their fence posts are not set up around the goodness of God. And so in in all of their talent to shepherd, they can shepherd a very, very well-behaved child who is still going to live a perilous life because their fence posts have been put over perilous country. It's like this. You could have a great dad, a great dad who could raise a great son, and he would say to his son, son, when you go on your date tonight, you just need to know, just before you have sex with her, just make sure you love her. He could be the perfect father, just teaching the wrong thing. Like, are your fence posts, does the word of God take them captive? I'm not saying, do do you know how to parent? I'm saying, do you submit? Do you agree with God about what is the good life? Because you could set, you could set up a beautiful fenced pasture on treacherous ground. Finally, so the Lord establishes himself. I am your father. I've rescued you. I provide for you. Manna in the desert, quail in the desert, water in the desert. All of this so that you know day in and day out that my mercies are new every morning, that I love you and that I'm your father. And I give you this promise. And I'm trying always and all the time to bring you into this promise, this good and spacious land. And in order to do that, I'm going to circumscribe the promise with rules so that you know when you're in it, you know when you're straying, and you know when you've crossed it. This is the whole scope of discipline. And when the child crosses outside of the fence line, you bring them back. Now, this is always a contentious moment. I, maybe it is not as contentious as, as, it, as I think it is. The whole spanking thing. So I'll back away. I can, I can, with a clear conscience, back away from the word spanking, but I cannot back away from the category of punitive discipline that inflicts pain on the child. Let me say it this way. Does God, if we think of Israel as the son of God, does God theologically spank his child? Yes. Frequently. It's a very poorly behaved child. Israel's always getting spanked. I mean, and it's not with the fingernail file. It's not. It's got some elbow action. The Lord is, the Lord, what I'm saying is, the word of God does not depict a heavenly father who reasons with the child at every encounter. There are times when the Lord himself says, you're, Don't go there. I said don't go there. They cross, and what does he do? He raises up the Philistines. Until they go, ah, the pain. Lord, we're sorry. Okay, I'll rescue you from the Philistines. Don't go there. I said Amalekites. Ah, there is this. So I just want to define the category. So what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to respond to the, heart, the believing heart here who rejects the notion of the spank. I don't want you to reject the category 
of simulated peril. Think of it that way. What does the spank do? It simulates peril. Because outside of the will of God is true peril. The child will really perish eternally if they are allowed to stray inexorably forever beyond the will of God. And so this is a case where you simulate peril. You, in the spanking case, you spank them because that's way less harmful than what might have otherwise unfolded. I'm saying this. When you have a daughter and she lies, right? You say, you don't, don't lie. And then they lie again. And you, I don't, you, know, and you, then you say to your spouse, like, where's the lying coming from? Have you heard the lying? And you begin to establish the trend, right? The trend of lying that enters into the home through the child. And then you've got to stop that. You've got to nip that in the bud because lying doesn't kill you, but to become a liar will. If you're a liar, you will perish, right? Or you have a child who hits, hits, don't hit, don't hit, don't hit, don't hit. You say to your wife, have you noticed he's always hitting everybody all the time? Yeah, I've noticed. Well, you, as a parent, don't want to raise a violent person who takes things by power because that is perilous. That's the spectrum of discipline. We establish ourselves as parents. We establish a good hope and a promise for our child. We fence the child, we fence the child in with, with precepts and rules, and we teach them that this is for their good. And when they stray, we say, right, we instruct them in the pasture. As they approach the fence line, we warn them, and as they cross the fence line, we call them back. And we call them back in the way that's fitting. And I understand age and temperament. I understand that I don't understand, but I do know that age and temperament inform all of that. So I'm not around spanking my 13-year-old, um, but the concept remains present. Okay. Our goal is to raise them in the peace and righteousness of the Lord. I'll close with this thought. This is, it has no way to fit in. Uh, There are a few things, since this is the close of the series, and next Sunday we begin a study on Romans. Uh, There are a few things I need to say just because they are hanging out there. Um, I really want to talk about what does it look like to discipline in anger. Uh, I wanted to talk about it today, and I just felt convicted by the Lord that it's such a big issue that I would be uh, compromising the idea. So at some point we're going to address just anger in general and how it has infiltrated us as a people of God in so many different ways. So I push that aside. And I want to close with this. At some point, and I know this is true as kids go older, you could fight and fight and fight at the fence line, but their heart may have already wandered past it, and kids have free will. Uh, We're not fighting. The fence is not the good life. The heart of the child is, is what we're fighting for. So some parents... You don't need to die on the fence line. That's not what this is about. You're trying to shepherd the heart of your child. And that may mean if they are strong-willed and they are going to roam and they're going to break the fence down every single time you mend it, they may need to roam and get hit. And you take them back. And that's hard, right? It goes counter to some of the nurturing tendencies that are in us. But if we're going for their heart, we can't... We can't make it artificially obedient when it's wandering way outside the fence line anyway. It's my prayer that the Lord would make this a home for families. Let's pray. Lord,
Um, I just ask that uh, you bless each family here. Father, and we confess we're all in different places. And in each peculiar home, there's a peculiar need. There are, we are a product of, of, of our parents who are a product of their parents. So much has been handed down. And some of that is good and some of that is bad. But we arrive here, Lord, as individual families that are coming to uh, the idea of family from different places, Lord. And so only you know that. Only you know what we need, Father. And so we are, we are at last forced to simply say, you are the one true father. That the relationship between you and your son is the one perfect image that we have. The harmony, the fact that your son is always in your will. And that between the two of you is one mind and one spirit and one voice. The fact that the Son only and ever says what you tell him to say, Lord, that perfect obedience, that harmony of love between the two of you, Lord, sits out in front of us as what we desire as parents and children, Lord. We desire not that we would simply raise kids who always agreed with us, Lord, but we desire that we would raise them to a place that is perfect and they would see it and agree. And so, Lord, I pray that you, you help us as parents focus and reorient towards the good life, that we have in Christ and help us instruct our children to it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.